BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My fellow Americans, thanks for joining us on the Bill Press Pod. And on this Friday, March 4, about 8.30 in the AM Washington time, welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable with lots of big news to talk about, starting with the war in Ukraine, now in its second week. And Russia so far has managed to seize only one Ukrainian city, even though Vladimir Putin insists everything is proceeding according to plan. So what's really going on? Can Russia be stopped? President Biden used his State of the Union speech to rally the nation behind Ukraine and to try to rally Congress behind what's left of his legislative agenda. Will it make any difference? The Texas primary kicks off 2022 politics, setting up a classic governor's race between Greg Abbott and Beto O'Rourke, and a high-stakes runoff for attorney general between the Bush Republicans and the Trump Republicans. And the January 6th committee drops a bombshell accusing former President Donald Trump of breaking the law in his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Will he be charged with a crime? Well, that and a whole lot more to dive into with today's all-star panel. Leah Askarinam, welcome back to the Roundtable, Leah, now co-author of the On Politics newsletter for the mighty New York Times. Hi, Leah. Good morning, Bill. Alex Seitzwald, Senior Digital Politics Reporter for the mighty NBC News. Hi, Alex. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. And Esvi Date, White House Correspondent for HuffPost. Hi, Sharice. Welcome back to you, too. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, so there it is on day nine of the war in Ukraine. Uh, this was shelling outside the city of Kharkiv uh, this morning. Uh, and ominously, Vladimir Putin yesterday telling France's president, um, Emmanuel Macron, that he intends to go and vowed to go all the way to the end in Ukraine. Uh, it was the focus of the, at least the beginning, the first half of the State of the Union speech this week, President Biden putting on his commander-in-chief hat to kick things off. Six days ago... Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. Alex, you've been doing a lot of reporting on Ukraine. What strikes a lot of us is that day nine, how slow the Russian advance has been and how much they are actually targeting civilian targets. What's your uh, overall take? Yeah, well, this is uh, unfortunately a a bit of both good news and bad news for the Ukrainians here. The the good news, of course, is that the Russian advance has been slower than expected. I talked to a lot of people, uh, you know, former U.S. uh, and current officials at the early days of the war when they took Chernobyl, uh, the, the nuclear power plant, I was trying to figure out why. And and the, the word that I got was that that was the quickest way from Belarus to, to Kiev. And uh, the the intel all said that Kiev was a, a 36-hour objective for the Russians. Well, we hmm. are many more than 36 hours into this, and uh, they have not taken Kiev. So that's the good news. But the bad news is that the, the Russian playbook going back to the wars in Chechnya, uh, to you know, basically the the way that they've conducted themselves um, in the, their their kind of backyard, global backyard, is that when things are not going particularly well, they just crank up the violence. Uh, they they shell residential blocks. They uh, care less about you know civilian casualties. Um, there's unconfirmed reports that they're even talking about uh, public executions in Ukraine now. Mm. 
Um, and so, so far, the resolve of the Ukrainian people has been very strong, but, you know, we're less than 10 days into this. And if they start um, indiscriminately killing civilians, you know, that could that could really change things. Uh, and Sharice, at the White House, the president, uh, despite all the sanctions that have been put in place, is still getting pressure from some people to do more, particularly um, a ban on Russian oil imports or a no-fly zone. Uh, what do you hear from the White House? Yeah, well, they, they've been pretty clear that a no-fly zone is basically an act of war. And so if we want to get into it with Russia, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good way to try. Um, that's World War That's World War Three, right? It, it, it very well could be, right. And and that's why there's zero interest in doing that. As to the, the, the ban on Russian oil, you know, they probably will get there eventually. But, you know, I, I find it hilarious that Republicans have been whining about oil prices and gas prices mm-hmm. now for months. And look at this Biden inflation. And, and now yeah, this would actually raise gas prices even more. Probably not that much since a lot of companies are on their own refusing to buy Russian oil because of the uncertainty, but it would raise them some. And then, of course, do you think that the Hugh Hewitts of the world would turn around and say, well, you know, it's a sacrifice we all got to put up with because of what... <laughs> Uh, but, you know, no, regarding I, I, the Ukraine invasion itself, though, I mean, you know, I covered a, a, a narcissistic sociopath every day for four years, and this is <laughs> this is scary as hell. Uh, mm. There's something. Some, I'm, I'm not a, a psychologist or, or a, a therapist or anything like that, but the man is weird. He's sitting at a table like a hundred feet long from anybody else. Uh, there's something going on, and what happens when nothing is going to plan? He's got nothing to lose, I fear. And um, I, I don't know how this ends. Right. Leah, is this um, maybe the one uh, event or series of events that can do anything to bring maybe more political unity in this country? I mean, we know where Donald Trump is on Vladimir Putin, but I was struck by what Mitch McConnell uh, didn't hesitate when he he was asked about Putin this week. Here's here's the Republican leader. There should be no confusion about Vladimir Putin, and there's been some confusion lately. He's a thug, he's a killer, and this will not end well for him. Now, so is that the Republican Party position here, and are Republicans and Democrats really united in this area, Leah? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of surprised during the State of the Union, which I'm sure I'll get into, about how it was a topic that seemed to bring Republicans and Democrats together so effectively when just, you know, a couple weeks ago we were seeing Donald Trump, who's in many ways, most ways, the the leader of the Republican Party um, praising Putin. Um, But I, I, I guess it shouldn't be that surprising. We have seen Republicans in the Senate part with Trump when it comes to foreign policy before. Um, even if they they won't criticize him directly, we have seen them you know take votes separate from what Trump has advised uh, things like that over his administration. Um, but it does it, it is kind of fascinating. You know, we thought that maybe there would be this moment of unity for Biden just among Democrats because of the Supreme Court nomination, maybe, um, you know, jobs numbers getting better. But really what we're looking at now is a completely different narrative. Um, That's, you know, the story is Russia, Ukraine. And uh, it does seem like Republicans, at least um, in Congress, the ones who are who are being vocal about it, are uh, generally on the same page. And even more wildly, it looks like a lot of the world is on the same page on this one. So uh, it's it's pretty, pretty wild. But do you think that this could be, uh, for Trump, the bridge too far, that, Republic, that, that gives Republicans finally the opportunity to just break with Donald Trump and publicly and just no longer, you know, embrace him as the head of the party? Or they still will stick with him? Um, I don't. Um, just because we've done this so many times before. I know. We keep looking, um, for, we keep looking for what's going to turn the tide, right? Right. And I mean, we saw Republicans, you know, criticize Trump for his approach to Putin during his presidency and for his positions on North Korea. I mean, this isn't um, totally out of out of step for Republicans when it comes to foreign policy. So, um 
and again, with, I mean, with Mitch McConnell, it's a whole other kind of, you know, Mitch McConnell and Trump are not on the same page in general. You know, Mitch McConnell um, is, there's, it's an enemy of Trump's at this point. Trump does not like Mitch McConnell. Mm. Um, so, you know, you can't even kind of put those two positions together. It, the Republican right. Party is so divided in so many ways. Um, it's in the post-Trump era. Um, and I think that gets glossed over a lot because they are in the minority and therefore there's a, a united opposition to Biden. Um, but when it comes to actual taking positions on anything, including foreign policy, I don't think there's all that much to unite them. But it does seem like this Russia-Ukraine um, war has done more than than we could have expected. So you mentioned the State of the Union. Let's get into that. We saw, uh, particularly at the with uh, the beginning of his remarks, uh, his uh, President Biden's determination uh, on uh, on the in the about the war in Ukraine. And he ended, uh, we saw a very passionate, very energetic Biden about the state of the union and uh, that our best days still lie ahead of us. Here he is. I've come to report on the state of the nation, the state of the union. And my report is this. The state of the union is strong because you, the American people, are strong. We are stronger today. We are stronger today than we were a year ago. And we'll be stronger a year from now than we are today. This is our moment to meet and overcome the challenges of our time. And we will, as one people, one America, the United States of America. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you. Go get him. Alex, go get him. <laughs> did, did the speech uh, achieve what the White House wanted out of this State of the Union? Well, I'm sure the, the White House would love for it to achieve, you know, 80% approval ratings and uh, the Build Back Better passage and all that. But for uh, what it's what a State of the Union speech can achieve, I, I think it was pretty successful. I mean, um, Biden is not the world's greatest speech giver, uh, I think it's fair to say. And this was a pretty good speech for him. He seemed, yep. you know, upbeat and engaged. And this is a, a tough moment uh, to to have a lot of enthusiasm about the state of the world, frankly. Uh, so I think he did a good job of that. And and it, it recalled to me uh, his stump speech from the campaign trail, where he would always end with this kind of refrain about, you know, never bet against America, get up, get on your feet. Yeah, right. Uh, very classic Biden. <laughs> Um, it did feel a little disjointed to me with the the top of the speech all about, you know, Ukraine and this kind of um, overriding rhetoric, this big rhetoric about, you know, how we're all going to join together and fight. And then the it seemed like they just kind of slapped that on top of the rest of the speech, which was your classic kind of laundry list of um, agenda items. So, you know, I think the state of the unions are, are less and less important as we hear more and more from presidents uh, in other means throughout the year and from other politicians. But uh, as far as any state of the union goes, I, I think they have to be pretty happy with it. Uh, and Sharish, um, we did not hear the phrase "build back better," <laughs> uh, but we did hear a lot of pieces of the former "build back better" bill. Uh, so, is the reset of the agenda sort of um, taking it like one step at a time and lowering expectations? I, I have no idea what the point is of renaming Build Back Better. Uh, what is it now? Building a Better America or whatever. I mean, I was on the Wisconsin trip right afterward. And right. Uh, I saw the new placards and everything. I said, okay, I guess we're moving on to the same thing except with a different name. Uh, you know, it is now Friday. I dare you to ask the average person on the street what they remember of, this, of the State of the Union address. And I, I doubt that most people even watched it. And those who did probably forgotten all about it. Luckily for Biden, the the people who who tend to watch these things on a passing basis, not political junkies, probably saw the first 15, 20 minutes, mm -hmm. which were probably the best and, right. and the most cohesive and the most unifying all about Ukraine. It gave him a chance to be the commander in chief. Um, I think what happened was Republicans assumed that the whole thing was a bluff, that Putin was going to threaten and threaten and eventually Biden would give in somehow and then, you know, they could blame Biden for giving in. And instead, once the tanks started rolling, yeah. now we have them required to say, you know, this is uh, this is unacceptable. Putin's a, a criminal, et cetera, et cetera, like uh, 
like Leo pointed out with Mitch McConnell. So it, it, did the speech work? It was a terrible speech. It was like four different speeches with zero transitions between them. I mean, as, as, a, as a work of craft, it was bad. Fortunately, no one cares. Right? <laughs> and and uh, uh, it, it doesn't matter even a little bit. So, Leah, um, one of the things the president did try to establish was uh, 6 million plus whatever new jobs, right? 5.7 uh, growth in GDP last year, uh, that the economy, is, we still have challenges, particularly inflation, uh, but the economy is growing stronger and stronger under his watch. Uh, reinforced just a few minutes ago on this Friday morning when the new jobs reports come out, 678,000 new jobs created in the month of February 2022 and unemployment rate down to 3.8%. Um, that certainly boosts, uh, uh, as a boost to what Biden was talking about in the State of the Union. Absolutely, and and theoretically. Um, so I think the, for What's tricky for Biden is he inherited a really tough situation, obviously, pandemic and the economy, not to mention, you know, a a former president who was determined to uh, to set Biden back potentially for a a new uh, presidential bid in 2024. Um, So in that sense, Biden gets to say things are better. And what we've seen before is that uh, it, historically, is that that's usually not quite enough for voters. Um, that said, if people feel the effects of this, um, then I think Biden gets I think Biden gets rewarded. We haven't seen numbers uh, come out polling numbers after the State of the Union, um, and really after uh, the R- Russia began um, its mm-hmm. invasion. Um, but what's tricky is, I mean, I, I just wrote about the 1982 midterms where actually Ronald Reagan had a kind of similar situation. Um, I mean, his his economy was much weaker than ours now, but basically talking to um, Republicans who worked with Reagan and um, historians and all that, it's just really hard to argue that things are better unless people are feeling it. And in order for people to feel it, I think um, inflation is kind of the key issue. Uh, so, you know, let's see what happens with inflation over the next few months. But it's it's definitely not bad news for Biden. Right. Uh, I guess we can't leave the State of the Union before we at least have to mention uh, that once again, the idea that maybe all of us grew up with with the State of the Union was at one time, at least if you didn't agree, people sat there politely and listened to what the president had to say and might even find something to cheer about. Uh, it has now become a platform where um, the crazies who want to make a point will do so, even at the point of being rude and ill-considered and just basically bad members. And of course, I'm talking about Lauren Boebert. Um, Mitt Romney maybe had (laughs) the best word on some of these freshman members of Congress who keep acting out. He said last week on CNN, here he is. I'm reminded of that old line from the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid movie where where one character says, morons, I've got morons on my team. <laughs> and I have to think anybody that would sit down with white nationalists and speak at their conference was certainly missing a few IQ, IQ points. Of course, he was there talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar. Uh, Alex, <laughs> I haven't heard Kevin McCarthy be quite as strong as Mitt, Mitt Romney. What's going on? Yeah, the, uh, McCarthy is not quite ready to uh, exorcise these uh, members <laughs> yeah. from his caucus. Uh, he's, you know, he he took pretty strong steps against Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think it was before the new Congress had even been convened last year. Maybe you know immediately afterwards, stripped her from her committees and whatnot. Um, but. You know, I, it's kind of a, a, a funny situation because these are two freshman lawmakers who have very little actual power in Congress. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is literally, you know, she just doesn't even have committee assignments. Um, but they get outsized attention and they want outsized attention. And it's it, it's a tricky thing to know how to respond to it because they do this outburst in a calculated way to to get notice. And then, you know, I'm seeing all these liberals in my Twitter feed who are tweeting about that more than the content of the State of the Union. And I feel like they succeeded in what they were trying to do. You know, they they wanted to, to trigger the libs and they successfully triggered the libs. And then 
uh, it, it kind of becomes the thing that we talk mm-hmm. about and pay more attention to. Uh, and it, yeah, I mean, M- McCarthy could do a much better job of, of keeping these people in line, but they're just responding to the incentives of the modern political social media environment where, you know, you do something outrageous, get noticed for it, get uh, donations from people online, get booked on cable news or whatever. And, uh, you know, both everybody does it to some extent. This is beyond that. But uh, it's a it's a long ways from who is it? Joe Wilson, who who yelled, you lie at Obama. And that was such a shocking moment then. Uh, And now this kind of feels like, you know, another day in in Washington. Yeah. Uh, For the record, I'm not I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, The morning after the State of the Union, because I happen to be, I think, on everybody's email list. Uh, I received a fundraising solicitation from Lauren Boebert uh, bragging <laughs> bragging about uh, her disrupting the State of the Union speech, which convinces me that was all planned ahead of time. They had they had this whole thing ready to go, um, and uh, just didn't just didn't happen on the spur of the moment. All right, we got a lot more to get to, including uh, the bombshell report from the January sixth committee on Wednesday evening, uh, which we'll jump into with today's uh, great panel, S.V. Dante, the White House correspondent for HuffPost, Alex Seitzwald from NBC News, and Leah Ascaranam from the New York Times. I'll hold on the rest of the week coming up in just a moment. First, uh, we want to say a great word of thanks to our sponsors for today's podcast, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Good men and women of the Teamsters Union, they are the largest and most diverse of all America's labor unions, over one and a half million members strong. Uh, And they represent just about every possible sector of the American economy, from construction workers in Las Vegas, vegetable workers in California, brewery workers in St. Louis, and bakers up in the state of Maine, as they say, uh, the Teamsters, represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers, all still under the leadership of outgoing president Jim Hoffa. So we salute the members of the Teamsters Union, direct you to their website to find out more about what they're up to at Teamster, their great work at Teamster.org. That's Teamster.org. This show is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition. We're partnering with the nonpartisan group represent us to promote efforts to protect the freedom to vote and pass laws that will make our government truly inclusive. America's democracy faces urgent threats, but there are ways we can build a fair path forward. So if you care about this issue like we do, visit represent.us slash podcast to learn more. That's represent.us slash podcast. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Back here on the Bill Press Pod and today's uh, Round Reporters Roundtable, Leah Askaranam is co-author of the On Politics newsletter at the New York Times, Alex Seitzwald, senior digital politics reporter at NBC News, and Shri State, the White House correspondent for HuffPost. It was Wednesday evening, Sharish, where the uh, January 6th committee came out with its report saying that um, their investigation shows that uh, Donald Trump and his allies were actually involved in a criminal conspiracy, their phrase, criminal conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. 
Uh, let's start with this, Sharice. Why isn't this getting more headlines, Sharice? It's just because people already expected it or what? Well, it's not getting more headlines because there's this war going on in uh-huh. Ukraine right now. There's that. Good point. Yeah. Uh, but the other part of it is, uh, and, and the polling shows this, that most Americans are just over January 6th. I mean, they were appalled when it happened, but they never really appreciated that this was a fundamental, like, existential threat to the republic, that what Donald Trump wanted to do was to overturn the election and remain in power, right? We don't have a republic at that point if that happens, but people didn't see it that way. They saw it as a riot of Trump's overzealous supporters, breaking things, going in, hurting police officers, beating them, a bunch of people got killed, but ultimately it wasn't really a threat to the country. That's, That's the overriding sense of most people. So what the Justice Department has been doing it's been laying the groundwork for this for months. Uh, a lot of people who broke in and tried to stop what was going on that day were charged with, with uh, interfering with an official proceeding. That is a crime. And judges have upheld that these people who tried to do that can be charged with that. So it was not a big surprise to me anyway that, that, that this was used in a filing by, by the January 6th uh, mm-hmm. committee in trying to try to uh, get the, one of the lawyers who was helping Trump, uh, John Eastman. He did all his coup planning emails on his work computer, which by the way, you ought not do, right? <laughs> do it on right. your personal server. Don't do it on the work computer if you're going to do a coup. But uh, so he's trying to block that. Uh, and the committee saying, no, you need to turn them over. And here's why there's a crime fraud exception. What you were trying to do was illegal. You don't get to claim attorney-client privilege. You weren't even his lawyer anyway. So it's always struck me that if people who are entering the Capitol trying to stop an official proceeding can be prosecuted for that crime, how in hell do you not prosecute Donald Trump? I mean, that's exactly what he's trying to do from from December 15th forward after the Electoral College had met. I mean, his people were on TV bragging about what they were doing. I mean, Stephen Miller was on Fox saying, we're going to send up our own electoral slate. Totally illegal. Uh, and, and they're going to use those instead. Well, that also is is blocking an official proceeding. So bombshell, because maybe people hadn't realized that's what DOJ was doing for all these months, um, whether mm-hmm. it ends up in a charge, well, you know, we'll see. But the groundwork's been there. It's been there for a year. But Leah, don't you think that if they come to this conclusion that the committee must ask the Justice Department to file criminal charges, and the Justice Department must launch an investigation. How can they just look the other way? I mean, it's, I think like one question is kind of like what's politically um, acceptable or what's politically popular right now. Um, and But are you saying of, that Mary Garland would be driven by the politics rather than no, the law? No, the, I'm the saying, law? <laughs> no, I'm saying that I, I think that the bigger the bigger question right now is what does Trump do in the future? What does Trump do in 2024? And while Americans might not be all, you know, super excited about this commission right now or have moved on, um, I, I think the bigger question is what what is it that um, prosecutors find that could impact whether Trump can run for re-election again? Um, and I think that's probably um, the big question. I, I mean, I'd imagine that, you know, this is, it, it seems like the panel is confident that there will be criminal charges. I, I you know, I, I can't imagine, um, you know, that, that being ignored. Well, but Alex, um, I, this decision has to be made by this committee this year, right? Uh, because they could be out of business by the end of the year, and they know that. So um, they're not going to wait to see what Donald Trump does about 2024, right? They've got to decide, go for broke or not. I I mean, I imagine uh, this is not the way that things are supposed to work, but I imagine that there are behind the scenes conversations uh, with the White House and maybe with the Department of Justice. Not already. I, I don't know, but you know, if it, if they do that, the politics of this are real. That if if the January 6th committee, which is controlled by Democrats and Liz Cheney. If they do make a criminal referral, it puts Merrick Garland and therefore the Biden administration in a really tough spot. Uh, and so I don't know that Merrick Garland is considering the politics, but I imagine the members of Congress who have to run for election every two years certainly are. And, um, you know, they're aware of that. And 
so I don't know. I mean, and this is the thing that we keep seeing with uh, these Trump investigations, where they, you know, they there, there's a lot of smoke. There's a there, we could maybe pro- prosecute him on something, but then there's always this pullback at the last minute to actually, you know, do any kind of um, prosecution. And uh, th- this came up on the campaign trail. You know, Biden was asked about it, and he sort of waved it off. But the kind of um, impression was that he did not was not comfortable with the idea of prosecuting a former president. Uh, so, you know, the, the reality of this is that politics are involved. I mean, you're, 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 it's, it's not just a strict legal matter. He's not just uh, a private citizen and there are constitutional and democratic, uh, questions. Like this is a, this is a precedent that you would be setting, um, that, you know, is potentially dangerous. And there are lots of countries where once a leader gets out of power, uh, they, you know, often end up in prison or, or facing investigations, prosecutions, and we don't really want to go that way. Okay. So while uh, the war was raging and the State of the Union was ringing out, uh, there was a lot of politics, political activity uh, this week. It started actually, uh, let's take a look at the various aspects of it. It started actually last weekend with uh, CPAC down in um, in Florida, and uh, our own Sharice Date was down there reporting on CPAC, Donald Trump giving uh, his usual delivering his usual message about the election being stolen. Um, what what was your takeaway from the CPAC conference, Sharice? One thing to remember is the CPAC has always been a the, the, kind of the fringe of the party, right? These are not necessarily serious <laughs> people who've been even even back in 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 the early Obama era, even before then. Uh, remember when when McCain got the nomination. And Romney was going to be the hero. Right? Romney was a real Republican against McCain. And they booed when he announced that he had stopped his campaign against McCain in 2008. Remember that? So uh, this is uh, you know, never really the mainstream of the, of the right wing of the party even. Now, even the philosophical underpinnings of this, sometimes you had libertarians, sometimes you had social conservatives, all that's gone. All of that is now gone. I remember when Jeb Bush, I think, gave the Ronald Reagan dinner. Tulsi Gabbard gave it this time. Tulsi wow. Gabbard, okay, who is uh, a probably a what you might even call a, a, a social democrat, is giving the Ronald Reagan dinner. Ronald Reagan is rolling over in his grave in California right <laughs> now. But this is this is ridiculous. The party has become uh, CPAC has become the cultiest of the cult for Donald Trump. That's it. Where you stand on Donald Trump is mm. decides whether you get invited or not. Liz Cheney was not invited. Tulsi Gabbard was. All you need to know. Yeah. So, hmm. you know, but, but if I can add just one thing on the, on the, on the uh, Justice Department and yeah. um, I, I, my sense is that they are going to go forward and charge people involved in the conspiracy. I wouldn't at all be surprised to see people like um, uh, Stephen Miller, Mark Meadows, people very close to Trump charged with, with uh, blocking an official proceeding. And frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if Trump himself were charged. I mean, I remember Merrick Garland's speech on January 6th, and, uh, and the president has said. Now, yeah, he said during the campaign trail that he didn't want to go after Trump, but right. that was before he tried to overthrow the republic, right? There's a difference between mm-hmm. doing crimes in office and, and various things, not turning over documents, uh, even extorting Ukraine over, over, over um, trying to dig up dirt. This was very different what happened. And I think Biden and I think Merrick Garland appreciate that. And that's why we're seeing kind of the slow grind toward probably indictments of people very close to the former president. Well, I agree with you that I think they will, they have to go forward. They must go forward, but we'll see uh, if indeed they do. But let's come back to the politics. Uh, Leah, you uh, take a look at it for your newsletter uh, nationwide. Texas, the first primaries of the year. Um, with some interesting results at the gubernatorial level and the attorney general level. Uh, what do you see happening out there? Yeah, it was a, was a fun fun night of results there. Uh, we do have a governor's race. The governor's race is set. It's going to be Greg Abbott, the Republican governor, and uh, Democrat Beto O'Rourke. He uh, actually won with, like I think, 90% of the vote in the Democratic primary, vote. which is yeah, mm-hmm. which is pretty impressive, but also keeping in mind that just way fewer Democrats turned out than Republicans, which is concerning to some Democrats. The Democrats say, you know, that there are fewer 
competitive democratic races. You can't compare general election numbers and primary numbers, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think the question you're probably getting at is Ken Paxton, attorney general, who uh, did not um, go in Texas. There's a, a runoff provision where in the primary you need to get 50 percent of the vote in order to win the nomination outright. Otherwise, uh, the top two vote getters compete in like May. Um, so like this, the, the runoff season is going to be really long. Uh, and so uh, we have Ken Paxton, the incumbent, going against um, George P. Bush. <laughs> um, so last um, kind of breath of the Bush dynasty in, uh, in, in Texas. Um, I, it seems like Paxton probably um, is, is in a stronger position. Um, he's, he's faced... Uh, some tough elections before and some tough circumstances and, and survived. Um, but yeah, it's going to, we'll see. But this is the ultimate test, isn't it? Of Donald Trump's uh, endorsement power. Well, that's the thing. There are so many races where Trump in Texas endorsed um, candidates who had already kind of won the primary, um, mm. you know, candidates who um, are just so we're never facing real competition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Greg Abbott ended up having Trump's endorsement, but faced some very Trumpy candidates. Um, Abbott ended up with about 66%, I believe, of the vote. I think votes are still being counted. So, you know, that shows you that Trump's endorsement probably matters, but it's not the end-all be-all. And there are still endorsements across the country Um then it's in, in Alabama's Senate race, in Georgia's governor's race, in Alaska's Senate race, where his endorsed candidates um, aren't um, in the lead right now in early polling. So, I mean, Trump's endorsement is such a, it, it's hard to compare across the board because sometimes he endorses some real, um, you know, candidates who are, who are on the path to winning. And other times it's like, you know, I, I think he's he's now trying to be more careful to not endorse people who look like they're going to lose. And in Texas, I think he did that. I think he learned that lesson. Um, in 2022, though, he's already made some decisions that he can't uh, turn turn around on in, in other states. So Alex, one other governor who, who is getting a Republican is getting a lot of attention because he's the one Republican a potential candidate for 2024 who refuses to say whether he would or would not run against Donald Trump. And that, of course, is the governor of Florida, uh, DeSantis, who um, uh, stirred up a little trouble this week when he walked into a news conference, uh, a photo op with a group of high school students who were, um, as required, uh, well, not as required, but as, uh, I guess, advised, wearing masks. Uh, and the governor, very publicly, right in front of the all the cameras, turned on them. Uh, here's Governor DeSantis. You do not have to wear those masks. I mean, please take them off. <laughs> Honestly, it's not doing anything, and we got to stop with this COVID theater. So if you want to wear it, fine, but this is, a, this is ridiculous. He uh, was criticized by parents and school administrators and others, and he uh, defended himself and still said this is, that masks are nothing but political theater. What's he up to, Alex? Well, uh, uh, it's rude. It's, um, you know, not nice, uh, but unfortunately it might be good politics. Uh, we're in a moment where like the, what I often think of as like the Disney movie values, uh, are not in vogue in, in politics. You know, what you learn in kindergarten about, about sharing and being nice. Um, it's not, yeah, it's the, it's meanness, cruelty is, uh, is, is a little bit, um, popular right now. But uh, I think what DeSantis, why he's so interesting is there's been this talk for years with Trump uh, when you talk to Republicans and they say, well, you know, if only he would stop tweeting or if only he would stop making stupid decisions or if only he'd be a little bit more strategic. But of course, Trump is not going to stop doing any of those things because he's Donald Trump. He's he's impulsive. He's not a, uh, you know, a a cerebral 12th dimensional chess player. Uh, Ron DeSantis is... I don't know if he's playing 12 dimensions chess, but he is more of a strategic player. And I think he's kind of testing that idea of, can you have Trumpism, but a more like calculated controlled Trumpism, you know, he's not tweeting crazy things all the time. He's not uh, giving these like off the cuff interviews where he's not prepared to give answers. Um, 
And so far, it seems to be working. You know, if he has to go up against Trump directly, that's a, that's a different question. But for Republicans who are looking for uh, an alternative to Trump, but still think that there's a lot of what Trump did that was, you know, clearly successful and that needs to be um, preserved in some kind of future candidate, DeSantis is trying to be that next uh, stop for them. So he's not an anti-Trumper. He's like a Trumper, but who's not Trump. He's like a 2.0. He's like a Trump 2.0. He's he's taking the recipe and trying to, you know, shave off some of the the edges and and make it a little bit more uh, efficient, a little bit more higher performance. Is your take, is your sense, Alex, that he's going to run against, would, that he would run against Trump in a primary? I, I, I if Trump is... If, if, you know, current trends continue and Trump is as strong as he is now, that seems unlikely. DeSantis is a young guy. He could he could run again. He could serve another term. Um, he could, you know, run for Senate. He could go on Fox News, whatever. Uh, but if, say, Trump gets indicted, if Trump has a health issue, if uh, for some reason he becomes less popular with the conservative base – uh, then I, I think it, he'd be far more likely to run. And, you know, the politics is weird and unpredictable and things happen all the time. So uh, I think he's he's making a, a, a smart bet to be ready just in case. Uh, is anybody else, would anybody else challenge Trump, Leah? Uh, others would, but I think the others that would would be like Larry Hogan, you know, like anti-Trump. Yeah. Hasn't he said no? Republican. So 2024? Yeah, I thought he had. I, I mean, I also don't believe anybody who says no two years out. Yeah, true, um, true. So that's that's part of it. I, I mean, I think you'd see anti-Trump Republicans lining up to run against him. None of them at this point um, would have a chance. Ron DeSantis is just the only person who Trump is afraid of. Uh, it's it's He's the only person who's um, managed to kind of stand up to him and not in terms of like ideology, but just in terms of, you know, saying you know, he's he he didn't show up to a Trump event recently. Um, you know, in Florida, uh, he's he's willing to kind of buck the president while also kind of being the president. I think Trump 2.0 is a really good way to put it. Uh, he's definitely the name to watch in 2024, um, whether or not Trump runs again. All right, take us to the other side, Sharish. Does Joe Biden run for re-election? Yeah, of course he runs for re-election. I mean, unless. Unless there's a, a pressing health concern that uh, uh, that says that that he should not or could not, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and and even if even if he weren't going to run, he's not going to say this until late twenty, you know, and, and at least until mid twenty twenty three. And uh, he's not going to he's not going to stiff his vice president. So, right. but uh, you know, DeSantis is a really interesting guy. The first time I saw him was at at a, at a Frank Luntz moderated event when he was running against Adam Putnam. Adam Putnam, who entered oh, the Florida yeah. legislature when he was like twelve, you know, and I covered <laughs> that back in like nineteen ninety six, and um, he was he's been running for governor pretty much since then, and he was going to roll through this, and he was going to be the next governor of Florida, and here was Ron DeSantis, and all he had was potentially a Trump endorsement. And that was this was before he got that, and he was on stage. He was reasonable. He 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 was thoughtful. He knew things. Mm. He knew a lot of stuff. And then he got the endorsement from Trump, and then he acted like Trump. Um, and then he was elected, and he <laughs> behaved like uh, Charlie Crist or Jeb Bush for his first year, before COVID mm. hit, and then he became again like Donald Trump. So this is this guy who can turn it on and off. And one point I'll I'll mention here is that I went to CPAC two years in a row, both in Florida, and the only person who did not mention Trump at all in either year was Ron DeSantis. Wow. Um, yeah. All the other candidates, potential candidates in 2024 mentioned Trump last year, and a whole bunch of them didn't this year. So I would disagree. I think these people are ambitious. They want to be president. They see this guy who was a, a yutz and they messed it up by letting him get the nomination last time. They're not going to make that mistake again. I see Ted Cruz running. I see Rick Scott running. I even see Marco Rubio running. Um, again. <laughs> again, against Trump, whether yeah. he runs or not. And plus, you know, there's a decent chance he's going to get indicted in Georgia. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, the Trump base won't care. And they'll say he's being persecuted. And Trump, of course, has, has, you know, already laid the groundwork for this. 
But these others can make a very reasonable argument that, hey, how is that guy going to run for president if he's constantly has to go and for court appearances and things, right? This is just not best. Maybe he can wait another four years. So yeah, I think DeSantis definitely runs. All right. Well, that's what makes politics so much fun for all of us uh, to cover. Uh, And there'll be lots more between now and uh, the rest of the primaries this year and then moving into 2024. Thank you so much to today's panels. Great job, Alex Seitzwald, Leah Ascaranam, and Sharish Date. Uh, Before we let you go, uh, we always want to know the one story that caught your attention during the week, made you at least stop and think about it, maybe laugh, maybe cry. Uh, Alex, start us off. Your favorite story of the week. Well, this is a political story, and it's about uh, Texas. The uh, I maybe you know where I'm going with this one. Uh, Congressman Van Taylor, he's yes. not a very not a household name, but uh, he <laughs> right. was forced into a runoff. Uh, he you had a primary challenge, and uh, that's not the most interesting thing. Although that is fairly interesting. The the more interesting thing is that as soon as that came out. He announced he is quitting the race and therefore quitting Congress, not running for re-election, admitting that he had an affair. Okay, so now we're getting very interesting, but it gets much more interesting than that, which is that he the the woman he had an affair with is none other than the quote unquote ISIS bride, uh, who is a woman in Texas who was married to a top ISIS commander. Uh, I have no idea how this came together, but um, that's that's one of those stories where you're reading it and it just, you know, it's already very interesting and then takes a, a major twist uh, partway through. And um, I, I have so many more questions that I want answered now. So I can't wait to hear the rest of that story, as Paul Harvey used to say, right? Yeah, it raised you, as you said. How, how did he connect with this ISIS bride? Well, uh, Alex, get to work, do a little research there. <laughs> Uh, my calls uh, uh, how about it uh leah what caught your attention you know you'll never believe it but that's the one that i was gonna bring up too all right i audibly gasped when i saw that it was van taylor personally just because that was not a a name i would have expected to see there um but there's some uh, another fun fact from the uh texas results um in the governor's race um, a guy named Rick Perry got 62,000 votes with, I think, votes still being counted. Um, now, this is not the former governor. Oh, Rick no. Perry. Oh, no. This is um, Rick L. Perry, who um, <laughs> we don't really know anything about. But um, having his name on the ballot with basically zero campaign a- apparatus behind him still got mm-hmm. 62,000 votes, about 3% in right. a primary. So name recognition. It's, uh, uh, it's an important that, thing in politics. That's what it's all about. I'm sure the former governor, right, says those were votes for me. And they probably <laughs> they probably were, right? Okay. I, I'd imagine so. Uh, well, uh, Sharish, uh, do you want to uh, make it three in a row for uh, Van Taylor? Or did you have a different favorite story of the week? I have a, a, a different favorite. It was written Good. by uh, Chris <laughs> Mathias, who, uh, a colleague of mine, who came to, to CPAC as well, but to attend a different conference. There's a there's like a white nationalist conference that kind of trolls CPAC by if you, you know, so if, C, if CPAC isn't crazy enough for you, this is the one you go to. It's called the uh, America First Political Action uh, Committee, and they had a, a, a super guest speaker, uh, their their keynote guy, Tom Homan, who used to be the the ICE director under um, under Trump, who showed up was going to go on stage and then realized maybe I should check these people out and Googled Nick Fuentes for the first time, supposedly, and realized that he's a, he's a white nationalist and left without ever taking the stage. Now, this is the event that Marjorie wow. Taylor Greene yeah, right. showed up at you know, and gave her speech and then was defending her, her appearance afterward. Wendy Rogers from Arizona was also there. So this is kind of funny that you would, you would go down to Florida to attend a conference, but not really know, supposedly, you know, what it was all about. Uh, yeah, that I hadn't heard that story. That is fascinating indeed. Well, my favorite story back here to Washington, D.C. also has to do with political rivalries. And it seems to be the growing rivalry between uh, Rick Scott, whom uh, Donald Trump is urging to run against Mitch McConnell and McConnell himself. And it came to light this week. And I got to tell you, I'm no fan of Mitch McConnell's, but he is one smart, savvy politician with a lot of years of experience and he knows when to play hardball when he has to play hardball. So Rick Scott had released, as we know, this uh, 
10-point program. This is what the Republicans, what we Republicans are going to stand for if we take over the Senate. Uh, one of those measures included raising, having everybody in the United States pay some share of income taxes, which would raise taxes on over half of the American population. Mitch McConnell was asked, so what do you think about um, Senator Scott's program? And Mitch McConnell didn't hesitate to, well, here we go. Here he is. Well, Senator Scott is behind me, and he can address the issue of his uh, particular measure. If we're fortunate enough to have the majority next year, I'll be the majority leader. We will not have as part of our agenda a bill that raises taxes on half of the American people and sunsets Social Security and Medicare within five years. Uh, what I love about that, I'm sure the panelists all do too, is he said it right in front of Rick Scott, <laughs> uh, and he didn't hesitate. I I remember the old wag that if you want a friend in Wash, a friend in Washington is someone who will stab you in the chest, not stab you in the back. Well, <laughs> Mitch McConnell uh, certainly did that this week. Um, what do you think, Alex? <laughs> was a, that was a moment, huh? I, it was definitely a moment. Uh, and speaking of, of 2024 a minute ago and, and Floridians who might run, um, that's how I read this document that Rick Scott put out. I mean, it was it was from the NRSC chair, uh, but you know, how many Americans know who the chairman of the NRSC is? How many Americans even know what the NRSC is? Uh, which, by the way, is the National Republican Senatorial Committee mm-hmm. and Rick Scott is the chair. Uh, so to me, this it was like, it's like a glossy, brochure. There's all these nice photos of Rick Scott and all these uh, quotes from him. There are no mentions of other Republican senators, at least that I saw, not prominently. Uh, this seemed like a, a promotion for one man. So I think what's going on here is, you know, it, this has been no secret that Rick Scott is eyeing a potential presidential run. And and I think he's kind of using his auspices as the NRSC chairman to put this out. Uh, and then for, per, for for personal reasons, and then Mitch McConnell saw a political liability here and smacked that down pretty quickly. Yeah. So Leah, the message is don't mess with Mitch, I guess, huh? <laughs> yeah. Love him or hate him. But he, uh, he's, he's like you said, politically savvy. Um, and uh, like I said, I don't think you can argue that there aren't major divisions in the Republican party, obviously. Yeah, indeed. All right. Hey, panelists, great job today. Thank you so much for being with us and your insights into the news of the week. We say again a big thank you to S.V. Date, who's White House correspondent for HuffPost, to Alex Seitzwald, senior digital politics reporter for NBC News, and Leah Escaranam. And her new post as co-author of the On Politics newsletter with The New York Times. That's it for today, but we'll be back on Tuesday with the uh, Bill Press Pod, where we're going to take an in-depth look into that uh, report of the January 6th committee uh, charging the president and some of his allies with a criminal conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. What do they detail? What do they recommend? And what are the possible consequences? Coming up on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Meanwhile, take care of yourself. Be strong, be safe, and then Come back and see us next time on the Bill Press Pod.